Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hey out there, rock and rollers. Welcome to the 69th edition of the Ugly American Werewolf in London Rock Podcast, recorded here in central London, just off historic Abbey Road. i got to tell you, we've got so many exciting things going on with the podcast right now. We're super busy, and we can't wait to share it all with you. We've got some fun interviews coming up, and now that we're a part of the Pantheon Podcast Network, we're just getting a lot of great ideas and great resources from this incredible team of folks, not only of Pantheon, but all our fellow podcasters out there who've been doing this a long time and have great stories to tell and great shows out there. And we hope you can go check all of those out as well as subscribing to ours. And we appreciate you listening to last week's show on the 50th anniversary of Deep Purple's A Machine Head. Got a lot of great reaction to it and we appreciate you giving it a listen. This week, we're going to go into Pink Floyd's catalog, and we're going to hit an album having a big anniversary this year of its own. And that's Momentary Lapse of Reason, which turns 35 this year. Now, for most hardcore Pink Floyd fans, they didn't even really consider this a Pink Floyd album, because famously, Roger ditched the band in the early to mid-80s, said that they could not go on without him. A lot of legal battles ensued, and then eventually... Out of it came this album. And yeah, it was supposed to start out as a David Gilmour solo album, but then I think pressure from the record company and other people led him to believe, well, we could make a Pink Floyd album and it would do a lot better, not to mention we could then do a big tour and make a lot of money. We'll talk about all that on the show, but for the most part, the hardcore Pink Floyd fans and the journalists and critics really panned this thing. It's not quite the wall. It's not Wish You Were Here. It's not Dark Side of the Moon. It's not Animals. It doesn't have that bite that it would have with Roger in the band. But for impressionable 14-year-olds, as Jax and I were when this came out, we thought this was great. This is our first Pink Floyd album that came out while we were kind of of age and could understand what was going on. Learning to Fly was a big hit single, not on the radio, but also on MTV. And the sound was very Pink Floydian. It's not like it was a complete departure. You hear it and think, well, that does sound like Pink Floyd, doesn't it? So it really worked to turn a whole new generation of fans onto Pink Floyd. Yeah, there's the haters and the people who are like, well, that's the new stuff. I only like the old stuff. There's always going to be people like that. And the critics are paid to criticize it. What are they going to come out and say? Yeah, this is the best thing they've done since Dark Side of the Moon. Nah, you know, it's it's different. It's missing some of the past ingredients, but it's still very good music as a whole. The album itself, if you listen to it all at once, is really kind of an amazing little journey of sound and ambience, and it has a little bit of bite to it. There are some poignant songs on here. David Gilmore may not be the greatest lyricist, but he works with some good folks, and the emotion that he can get out of his guitar and put into his music is what makes the Pink Floyd sound. In my humble opinion, and that's what Jax and I are going to talk about this week. Now, as usual, we want you to subscribe and download wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's Apple, Spotify, Amazon, Google Play, 
Good Pods is a great place to interact with independent podcasters. And you can also check us out on Pantheon Podcast Network, pantheonpodcast.com, or at Pantheon Pods. Not only see all of our stuff, but a lot of great music podcasts that are part of the family. So with that, it may not be the most popular Pink Floyd album ever, but it's one that holds a special place in our hearts, and that's Momentary Lapse of Reason. And that's what we're going to get into, me and Jackson, right now on The Wolf. And why don't we start the show talking about just being happy about Pantheon? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it, just the, the fact that they welcomed us in is fantastic. It gives us a huge new audience to listen to. It makes us sound semi-professional. Semi. Uh, and, and, and also, yeah, and also I'm excited to, to even interact with some of the other, the other people on the service, hopefully, like the Shouted Out Loud guys and, you know, getting to know the other shows that are available because they all look pretty good. Yeah, no, I mean, there's some great ones. Obviously, we love the Shout It Out Loud guys, and, and they not only have a great show, but they've been very good to us, not only giving us shout-outs on the show once in a while, but behind the scenes, you know, give us an encouragement and ideas and stuff like that. So really appreciate Tom and Zeus for just being good to us. I mean, look, they're really good to their fans and to the listeners of the show. If you ever listen to Shout It Out Loudcast, you know those guys are really into it. When people interact with them, they love that stuff, whether it's on social media or sending them emails. They're really good to their listeners. And they've been good to us as well. And they helped us get to the right folks at Pantheon Podcast Network. And uh, yeah, so now we're part of it. Couldn't be more excited. I mean, you know, we started out just two guys who lived together in college for a couple of years, college roommates, who knew more about rock and roll than anybody else did and cared more about rock and roll than anybody else did. And well, we turned that into uh, into our show here thanks to, the, uh, thanks to the pandemic. I guess not really thinking about thanking the pandemic, but... Due to the pandemic, we figured out that, hey, we can talk about rock and roll every week for at least an hour or so. And now we just kind of record and share it with the world, try to give the UK perspective that I've learned more about since living over here versus the US perspective and with some cool guests. Yeah, de- definitely happy to talk to meet uh, the people that we've been introduced to on the, by doing this. You're right. It was going to be a conversation that was going to probably happen anyway. So might as well just record it. That's right. And I think I've gotten to know maybe some records that I listened to a whole bunch of times, but never really like dove into them. So it's kind of a whole new chapter, I guess, on my, uh, my enjoyment of these records to, to really have or try and have a uh, intelligent conversation regarding them. Well, and, you know, your tastes evolve and they change over time. And you, know, you don't hear things the same way when you're 16 as you do when you're 50. Things can mean, you know, they can mean different things to you. And we didn't, we weren't into progressive rock. We loved Asia, but that's pop prog. You know, we, we were never into progressive rock. And then as we got older and we start to hear some of this music, we're like, well, yeah, that's real musicianship. That's a real story they're telling there. And, and then we can branch out and then you find all these others. So it's an evolution that we can kind of go on together. And, you know, the fact of the matter is we kind of grew apart, you know, from about 20 years ago till about 10 years ago, give or take. And, you know, there were times when I'd be listening to something new or I'd be discovering something. Maybe it was old and I'm just coming across it for the first time. Like, oh man, I need to play this for Jackson. But then we, it's not like we were mad at each other or anything. It's just, we just kind of fallen out of touch. We're not exactly, we don't write letters. We don't talk on the phone and we're not internet guys. We're not, you know, social media guys. So it's not like we were following each other or anything. So I'm just glad, if anything, 
Glad now I have someone to share this with because anyone who's a big rock and roller and likes to talk about it knows your wife's not going to talk to you about this stuff. No. She will kind of half listen and give you the, uh uh-huh. Right. That's nice. (laughs) You know, especially when I talk about, and then they did this and they flipped the whole thing over and then he's playing the guitar and the bass. Yeah, exactly. And it's just like the eyes glaze over. But, But to me, there really isn't anything cooler than when you get a suggestion for a record. Maybe you you've heard a little bit and mm-hmm. no, 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 this is really good. Or maybe you haven't heard it at all. And then you get a chance to experience it. Yeah. And it's, well, yeah, I, I'm glad I didn't miss this. I'm glad I got introduced to it and now can have a whole nother appreciation. I mean, and you're right. We, we started with, yeah, we started with Asia. We started with 90125 from yes, mm-hmm. more of the pop stuff. And then to work it backwards and say, Oh, they had got great stuff from the beginning of the band up until that point. Yeah, it's, it's great, and I'll never get tired of doing this. Exactly. That's the thing. We can do this for decades, you know. And, you know, when it comes to Prague, we did like Pink Floyd. No one ever called it Prague in the 80s or 90s when we were listening to Pink Floyd or going to see Pink Floyd live. It, it was just right. Pink Floyd, right? And obviously there have been different eras of the band. And so, you know, Momentary Lapse of Reason is, we kind of discussed this before when we did our Delicate Sound of Thunder show, which I guess was our third show. This was kind of our Pink Floyd album, right? I mean, you always heard Dark Side of the Moon on the radio and then it never left the top 200 for two, three decades, whatever it was. You knew songs from which you were here. The wall was big. I remember being a young man and and being like, you know, seven, eight years old. And the wall, the songs were on the radio, but also like the movie, eight or nine years old, you would start seeing it at the theaters that maybe would show Rocky Horror on the weekends, like a midnight show of that. Suddenly, like, Rocky Horror would be the Friday show and The Wall would be the Saturday midnight show. Yeah, and I have to be perfectly honest with you on this. This is going to be really hard for me to discuss objectively because this, listening to this record, this was my first love. I Mm. mean, this really opened the door for me. It's like that first girlfriend you had and, you know, maybe she had a wonky eye and (laughs) back brace was a little hard to, you know, navigate, but you still loved her. I mean, I just, listening to this record again, it just brought back so many memories of just laying in my bed at night with the headphones on, listening to this over and over and over again. Because you're right, I'd heard you know a little bit of Pink Floyd. Oh yeah, yeah, I know those guys. And, may, and then when this came out, this was again, yeah, this was our record. This right. was new, and so it, you could take it from there. And then it kind and I, you know, like a lot of other bands, I worked it backwards from there, and then got into the rest of the catalog. But yeah, this will always be. I know there will probably be people that will say, "Oh, well, you know, this was '87, and it was just Gilmore and no Roger Waters." So, but, but no, to me, to me, this album will always be fantastic. Yeah, I mean, it's the critics who ripped it. I mean, you will not find a positive review of this. Anywhere in the historical record, and you know, maybe some of the words would be positive, you know. But you know, it sounds like some old classic Pink Floyd. But as far as like the star ratings would go, you wouldn't get over two out of five from anyone. It seems. Yeah, and I think this was—I think this was supposed to be like a another Gilmore solo record, mm-hmm. and then it kind of just morphed into Pink Floyd. So he did the bulk of the writing on this, and I think there were a lot of yeah. The, the, this was a weird time too because was it really Pink Floyd? without Roger Waters. Well, that's the thing. I mean, and that's what the critics are saying. Like, without Roger, with his lyrics making you sad about everything in the whole world, without those biting (laughs) lyrics, 
Not to mention that pounding bass makes it sound like the yeah. army's going to roll over you. They're right, it's not as heavy, and David Gilmour is not a great lyricist. That's why he married Polly Sampson, who is a great writer. He can do the music part. She can do the emotion with the words. That's a whole other kettle of fish that people had a problem with later. But yeah, incredible turmoil leading up to this album. And I want to get into all that. But as far as, look, the sound, it's easy to criticize it like, well, if you put it next to Dark Side of the Moon, it's not as good. You put it next to the wall, it's not as good. Yeah, well, nothing's good next to those two. Right. You know? I mean, Animals yeah. is horrible next to those two, you know, and I like a lot of stuff off of Animals. You know, how great is metal compared to those two? You know, it was building to that, but it wasn't there yet. And and sonically, in 1987, and, and you know, we're impressionable, right? We're 14, 15 years old. We watch MTV. Learning to Fly is all over MTV. They showed it once every 90 minutes to two hours or so, it would seem. Right. And it had that atmospheric Pink Floyd sound, but it also had lyrics you could relate to. Some of that heavy-duty stuff that Roger sings about as a kid, that's not going to make sense to you anyway. But, but you know, Learning to Fly is kind of right down the middle, and it's about Nick and David learning to pilot airplanes. Right, and, and and you're right. The the stuff from, especially from the wall, where you know, growing up, you know, in an English town with English, you know, just the way that you lived your life. You went to the boarding schools, and the, the whole, and yeah, that just didn't resonate with me. I mean, I can listen to it and and appreciate it, but I was never like, I never felt like connected to it personally, as as in, oh, they're they're saying what I'm feeling. No, not really. Right. And, and this was a little more. You're right. This is a little more lighter, a little more accessible. Exactly. Uh, it's not all happy. There there are some. There are some kind of grim parts to this, but yeah, I think it's an accessible record. I think it was a great thing for them to come back to. And the other thing was, you know, in 1987, is this what they needed to roll into the massive world tour that would become Delicate Sound of Thunder? Yeah, exactly. I don't I don't know how that would have gone without this record. If it was just a rehash of everything, like if they were just doing a greatest hits tour in 1988, I don't know if it would have gone over as well, but they had hits that were brand new right. that they could play with the stuff. And, and then, yeah, that was massive. Also, we covered that on our episode. Right. And so it was really, I mean, to me, they're almost synonymous. Like I, I have a hard time differentiating momentary laps from delicate sound because they, to, they came out at about the same time. And I just, I listened to both of them over and over and over again. So they kind of almost meld together. Yeah, no, that's fair. And I, I got delicate sound first and because it had the greatest hits on it, but it also had the new stuff on it. Mm -hmm. And it's a double disc, you know, and I listened to that back and forth, back and forth. I'm like, God, these guys are great, you know. So eventually I did get Momentary Lapse, and it's been a go-to for me. It can be really mellow. You put it on in the background, and yeah, you might want to sing along to Learning to Fly or, or Turning Away, something like that. But there's a lot of instrumentals. There's a lot of good Pink Floydness in there, classic Floydness in there. And it fit the time of 1987 well. You know, it, it could, you could hear it on the radio next to a U2 song, and it would make sense. It was good to hear it. And again, the video I thought was good. So, yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and it, it kind of introduced them to you know people like us a new generation exactly and, but it was relevant it was relevant it wasn't like uh you know sometimes they well like remember when um, aerosmith put out pandora's box right. and they did a video for what was it um boom, 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 boom. sweet emotion yeah yeah sweet emotion so that was i mean the video was new 
but the song was old. So right. it was kind of like, eh, but this was this was new. It kind of introduced himself to a new generation with new songs that you could, you know, like we talked about before, this could this could be your own. This was your record. Yeah, exactly. Now, having said that, it was not easy for them to get this record made. So to, to kind of take us back in Pink Floyd time, yes, The Wall comes out technically in 79, but it's record of the year in 1980. Double album, mm. huge, epic. The tour fails to make money because it's just too expensive to put on. But then they figure out, well, let's make the movie. And the movie goes on. And it, it, it's not a blockbuster. It, it's more of a cult classic. It's not something that runs 17 times during the day at the multiplex. It's something that comes on at like 10 o'clock or midnight at the one-off, you know, like beer house cinema in your, in your neighborhood, right? And that does well. Obviously. Then, in 1983, they come along to the final cut. Now, of course, Roger Waters dominated the wall. It's his idea. It's his baby. He wrote or co-wrote every song. But the final cut was a bunch of throwaways from the wall. It's it's stuff that wasn't quite there. The Tigers Broke Free is a pretty good one but most of the rest of it it's you know it's a little disjointed and Gilmore's like the same way it's like these weren't good enough for a double album three years ago why are they good enough now and Roger's like no I'm still in control Rick Wright's still out of band so it's like okay we'll make the final cut they also made a film around the final cut which they showed on MTV one night in I don't know when it was 83 84 something like that and I remember being all excited about like oh yeah I remember, I've heard about Pink Floyd and the Wall, and now there's a movie about this final cut. I don't know what that is, but I can't wait to watch it. And for like a 10 year old kid, I'm like, this is horrible. The music's no good, and like the, <laughs> the visuals are odd, and it's like, this is an artsy thing. This isn't like a fun rocking, this isn't like when Duran Duran, you know, went to the Caribbean and made all those great videos. This is like, right. Yeah. This yeah, is this like, is, old yeah, this isn't Michael Jackson dancing with zombies on the street. Yeah, yeah. What is this? And, and I don't think they didn't play like that. Even the movie didn't have any of the back catalog, right? It was just the huh. final cut stuff. It was just final so cut. So you didn't even know any of the songs. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And Roger's like in the dark, sitting in a chair, you know, grumbling in the microphone. Like, what is this crap, you know? <laughs> so I had to put that out of my head. Now, of course, he then did the pros and cons of Hitchhiking, which may not have been a great record, but it didn't have a bad cover to it, if you want to go check that out, young Ben. <laughs> David Gilmore had his second solo album, About Face, which I actually really like. I've had that for a number of years. But then his tour didn't do that well. I mean, neither he or Roger had a big, like, Pink Floyd-sized tour. And Roger went out and got a lot of really great musicians, including Eric Clapton. And I'm like, why? How did you even get him? And then he got pissed because Clapton was kind of the bigger star of the show. Like, he would get (laughs) bigger rounds of applause. I'm like, well, yeah, man. He's Eric Clapton, you know? I mean, what did you expect? He's a way bigger star. I mean, I know in your head you're enormous, Roger. But, you know, you were one of four. And uh, and he's Eric F. Clapton, you know, so you take it easy, you know, settle down, as our friend Tom on Shout It Out Loud would say, right? <laughs> yeah, so then you wonder, was that the problem with, with Gilmore? You know, he came in and he, you know, he did the vocals, he did Comfortably Numb. I mean, mm-hmm. you mentioned that Roger Waters wrote the entire, he wrote the entire wall by himself. Except, except for Comfortably Numb. numb. Yeah, that's Oops. Right. So, I mean, it kind of sounds like, yeah, he kind of has this chip on his shoulder about how, you know, I need to be number one, I need to be the star out front so you're right having eric clapton there didn't help that at all no no he's not going for that right so and it's like okay 
1985, I'm quitting. That's it. I'm leaving Pink Floyd. And you don't get to be Pink Floyd anymore. Mm-hmm. And they're like, mm, I don't know about that. I, I don't know that people leave bands all the time. And I, I don't know about that, you know. So, but you're right. Starting on this project, it was kind of supposed to be a David Gilmore solo project. CBS comes in and said, you know what? We could really sell a ton of copies of a new Pink Floyd record. So it's like, okay, yeah, well... Maybe we can, and you know, we can get Bob Ezrin, who who produced The Wall, and also worked with Kiss, of course, on Destroyer and the epic Elder in the early 80s. But Bob could come in, and Nick Mason could come in and, and do his thing. That's when the lawsuits started to fly, man. And I've never seen, in researching a record before, researching an album, I've never seen so many different legal battles and legalese and all the stuff that was going back and forth, suing each other and threats from record companies. I guess when there's when it's Pink Floyd and there's that much money at stake, I guess I get it. But still, it's sad. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with you that it's sad because all you're doing is cheating the, the fans. But I can see Waters' side of it if he's not going to be involved with this anymore. What if you put out just a complete piece of garbage and then that kind of taints the legacy of the rest of the band? I don't know. I mean, I know that I know there's feelings hurt because, you know, at the bottom, the bottom line is you don't want there to be anything Pink Floyd without you on it. Yeah, I get how that works. That it's your band. You started it. It's yours. But I mean, you left. So the other side of it is what do you want the rest of us to just lay down and die? I mean, we've got other stuff we want to do. Yeah. Not to mention, it wasn't always him controlling the band. In the 60s, when they got started, Sid Barrett was in control of the band, okay? And then once Sid was nudged out, it was a collective. Yes, Roger was doing a lot of the lyric writing, but there was a balance between Gilmore's guitar work and a little bit of lyricism, and Rich Wright wrote a lot of songs with them and a lot of musical parts. He does some singing, you know, Nick Mason gets credit on some songs, and from like Metal and Dark Side and into Wish You Were Here, that's the way it was. Then you get to the animals, wall, final cut. Okay, yes, Roger is now firmly in control. He's the majority songwriter, conceptualizer, and leader of the whole thing. He was able to kick Rick right out of the band before the wall tour, right? So he exerted his authority. He's like, you can't record without me. It's like, well, yes, we can. We can set up a new Pink Floyd Corporation. You'll still get all your royalties from the all stuff. This is not new. This happens all the time, you know, we can do this. We are absolutely allowed to do it. But he kept throwing injunctions on them. And then eventually I think it became like, like CBS wants to pay us a lot of money for this record and make money off of it. So if you block us from doing it, then we can sue you for stopping us from releasing the record, right? You know, and 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 eventually he just kind of he realized, you know what? I don't know the law well enough. The law was he thought the law was all on his side just because he was a still on the board of Pink Floyd Music and all that kind of stuff. But he he, he eventually realized later. He will admit I was wrong. I was wrong to say they could not continue without me. But even getting Rick Wright back in the picture was part of that. In that, yes, it would help them sonically because he knew the Pink Floyd soundscapes and contributed to them over the years. But even legally, it's like, well, look, we there were four guys in Pink Floyd, and now we got three of them. So just one of them's gone. We still get to be Pink Floyd. Now, that said, he was not a member of Pink Floyd, right? Correct. Part right. of his going away package in 1980 or whenever it was, when Roger kicked him out of the band after the wall, was that he could not be a member legally. Again, more legal stuff. That and Nick Mason and... 
David Gilmore probably just wanted to grab all that money for themselves. But I, I saw a note where he was paid like $11,000 a week, Rick Wright, as a session musician over the time. And if they did this for three months, well, that's a steady little income. Yeah, it's not, it's not so bad for a few months' work, right? Right. And, and you know, you then on the flip side of that, like you don't have any – you don't have to pay any of the bills on the back end, any of these legal fees, any of this other stuff that That's you have right. to do. I mean, yeah, you just get your check and go home. And then, yeah, but you're right. 50-50 is a lot tastier than 33 and a third. That's right. On the uh, on the split. But, and he yeah, made out, I, I, I was going to just yeah. say real quick, he made out on the wall tour too because Correct. They, they paid him very well to play on the wall tour, whereas the, lot, well, the wall tour lost a ton of money for the band. But he was just a hired hand at that point, so he actually made money on that tour. Yeah, I just thought it was weird too because when you, I remember when you opened the gatefold because I remember like Pink Floyd was a band, right? Mm-hmm. There's a band, more of the people, but it was just Gilmore and Mason on the gatefold, the That's two of right. them in their very '80s looking suits, yes, uh, attire. But yeah, I'm like, hmm, that's kind of strange. So yeah, obviously this isn't the same thing that you were used to going forward in this record. Yeah, and it was the first time they'd actually had a band photo since, oh God, I mean, was it Metal or Umagama? It was a long time ago. They did right. None of their 70s yeah, stuff really had it yet. But that was part of it. They would say, this is Pink Floyd. This is who we are. And they wrote with outside writers, several of them. They worked with a lot of different musicians and not the same exact people who we would then see on the Delicate Sound of Thunder tour because they had a big band and we obviously went over that in depth on episode number three. But, you know, this is obviously a huge production. This is Pink Floyd, you know, coming back after the final cut was a disappointment. I mean, 1980, you go out of the 70s, you come into the 80s with the biggest album of the year, a double album that sold tens of millions of copies, made them a ton of money. The follow-up was... So now the record company's like, like, yeah, we get one of these huge brands back, finally, you know, and then the band can be like, well, yeah, now that we figured out, now we can do a real big tour, right? Because Roger hated touring, that's why he created The Wall, so he wouldn't have to look at the audience. You know, he famously spat on the audience in Canada during the Animals tour. So they're like, okay, we can do this right. And they did it right. The tour was unbelievable. Not only in scope and as far as the sound and the visual of of the every night, but the money they made was big time. Yeah, and I've got to so so that was eighty eight. I've got to I've got to imagine that that pretty much upped the bar for everybody else after that. So like you know when the Stones came back in eighty nine for Steel Wheels and they had that you know Urban Jungle tour, like they knew it they had to go bigger because people were expecting that out of a out of a big rock show. So yeah, this was a real game changer for them. The album and the then the subsequent tour. Yeah, the big circle with the lights in the back, big circular screen where they could put the video right. on there and the lights and the different ways it's amazing it's it's it was awesome I, we didn't see it live because we were a little young and probably a little unaware you probably could have seen them somehow in greater new york if you i could have seen that show i could have seen the show they recorded for that because it was at the i think it was at the nassau coliseum it was on long island uh, right so way to go dummy for missing out on that <laughs> yeah but the, but the other thing I thought was really cool in, in The Delicate Sound of Thunder was they had so many people on that stage. Like, everybody yeah. had a double. Like, right. like, you know, Mason was on the drums, but they had another guy on the drums. They had another guy on keyboard. They had Gilmore out in front. So it was, yeah, it was just a massive, and, you know, they had the, the, at least three backup singers right. who were female to do the high parts. 
And yeah, it was it was just a massive undertaking. And that was interesting too for me to look up because we did spend a lot of time on the backup singers who we love: Durga McBroom, Rachel Fury, uh, and Margaret or Imagine Taylor. But they had three other amazing ladies and the dude sing on the record who were very accomplished and you know won Grammys and things like that. So we can kind of get into the details of who played on and all that. But eventually, the legal stuff got settled and. They recorded most all of it on David's boat, the Astoria, which he keeps on the Thames. But I think they also eventually went to L.A. to work near Bob Ezrin's house because that way the lawyers would, you know, they're not going to call him in the middle of the night to cease and desist because, you know what, it's eight hours away, you know. So they're like, yeah, we'll just go out there. It's sunny anyway, and we'll, we'll record and we'll get that stuff done. But to me, they created this very atmospheric, ethereal, floydy sounding thing. It doesn't have a lot of the bite. It doesn't have a lot of the hardness and the heaviness, although there's a couple of songs that certainly qualify for that. But I right. find it very listenable. It fit into time, and I, I think it sounds great now. And the people who want to denigrate it and say, well, it's not Roger Waters, and it's not quite like their heyday. Okay, fine, you're right. It's it's not, but that doesn't mean it's not good. And I, I think it deserves much more credit and good listen. People come in with an open mind, I think you'll like it. Yeah, and I think you have to realize, too, that for, for people like us, in our age range, we would not have, if Waters had gotten what he wanted, we would have never gotten exposed to this. There wouldn't have been, there wouldn't have been any more tours. I mean, this basically reinvented them to go on for 15 years or 20 years, whatever they did past this yep. to, you know, this into pulse into, I mean, this, this basically reignited the career that, that gave a whole other generation a chance to, to experience this music. Well, that's especially right. Especially live. Yeah, and yeah, and the Division Bell Tour, I did get to see them yeah. live in Tampa in the Big Sombrero. It's still, when people ask me, because I've gone to, you know, a couple hundred rock shows over the years, or hundreds maybe, and they ask me, you know, hey, what was your favorite? Or, you know, what, what is the one band you really wish, you know, glad you got to see? I always come up with Pink Floyd because I only had a chance to see two tours, really. And at least I caught one of them. And right. I, I probably should have dropped out of school to see as many as I could on that tour. But because <laughs> it was amazing. It was so, so cool. Hey, guys, this is Chris from My Rock and Roll Heaven. And you're listening to the Ugly American Werewolf in London podcast. But at any rate, let's let's try to stay focused on on right. uh, on momentary lapse of reason. So the the cover though, back to uh, working with Storm Thorgerson, right, uh, of hypnosis to put all the beds out there and the little mm-hmm. hang glider out there. You know, it's fairly Floydy, right? You know. Right. It gives you that like, wait, what are we doing here? You know, I mean, first of all, you know, the the title is a little like, what is it? Momentary lapse. Or, okay, ooh, and all the beds are out there, and yeah, there's a hang. You can spend some time, you know, trying to figure out what's going on uh, on the cover. And you know, we've talked about this before. That's that's always a cool. It doesn't it doesn't make or break the album, but if the album's good and the cover is good, it just it's just one more. It adds to it. Yeah. Box to tick. Yeah, it adds to it. Adds to the value. Yeah, absolutely. But I see some criticisms of like you know there are a lot of instrumentals on here, like pure instrumentals, mm-hmm. because again, David may have a wonderful voice, but he's just not 
a lyric writer. That's really just not his forte. So we start with Signs of Life, which is instrumental. And I, again, it's very Floydy. It's light, atmospheric. It doesn't have that heavy thing that Roger would have brought to it. And although they have Tony Levin, who's an amazing bass player, played King Crimson for a long time. I think he's with King Crimson right now. Very talented man. He, he's tuned down, I think, or he's um, his volume is down a little bit, whereas Rogers will boom, boom. You could really hear the thump and the thud of his bass on everything. It, it's down in the mix a little bit with the guitar a little bit higher. That is what, a part of why everyone's saying it's a David Gilmore solo album. But I like the right. signs of life. It's a nice way to start the record to ease you into it. Well, it's, you know, you don't really know what's going on again. You're just kind of getting into this. It sounds like, I mean, am I in a boat? It sounds like we're on a little rowboat just rowing and you hear the water go by and then, you know, it builds into the keyboards and then there's a kind of couple, like there's, there's, you can hear voices, but you can't really make out what they're saying. It's, very, it's very not Floyd real. Too. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, it's not, it's part of the song, but it's not, you can't make out the, the words, at least I can't. And then there's, there's the kind of the, the riff that comes in on the uh, acoustic guitar, which will then kind of, it'll kind of permeate through the whole record. They're just kind of priming you for it right now. Yeah. Yeah. And we do get Rick right on this. Look, a lot of the stuff, a lot of the keyboard was already done before he came in. He played keyboard on uh, on about five different tracks, the, the, the Hammond organ. But he also played piano on what I call the three big ones, Learning to Fly, On the Turning Away, and Sorrow. But he did play a little Hammond organ on this one. It's just good to have him back. I, I really don't understand why Roger kicked him out. I, I guess he wasn't coming up with enough new stuff. I guess, was he, was he not writing enough stuff? I I don't know. Roger's like, if you're just going to sit there, uh, you know, then I'll take, uh, I'll take a third instead of a quarter, and you can leave. But his soundscapes, and obviously his backing vocals are part of that signature Pink Floyd sound. Right, right. And and it's it's good that they brought him back. I mean, I don't know if if it was wholly because of the, you know, giving you a stronger leg to stand on with the lawsuit, but it is good to have him back because I mean, let's face it, he was there from the beginning and okay. it's just it's just cool to have another original member back. Well, actually, yeah, Gilmore's not an original member, so you have th- those two. Right. But I mean, eh, I mean, you can argue that for a while because it, no, he wasn't original, but I mean, he's been around for a long time. And well, yeah, Steve Perry was wasn't original writers. Journey either, but he's, right. he's quintessential right. Journey, you know. Yes. Yeah. Right. So that's the way. The I classic like lineup. Yeah. Right. Bruce Dickinson wasn't the original lead singer of Iron Maiden, Correct. but but he is the lead singer of Iron Maiden. Yeah. <laughs> the lead singer of Iron Maiden. Thank you. Now, yeah, I mean, the thing is, Rick Wright was a little out of practice because he hadn't been touring much, and it was the same with Nick Mason. Apparently. So much so that Nick decided to concentrate on doing all the sound effects on the album. And he did okay. some drumming and stuff like that. But most of it was done by Jim Keltner, you know, who was a good friend of George Harrison. And he played on his solo albums. He played with the Wilburys. So how does that work? Do you call Nick and he's like, yeah, 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 no problem. I got this. Yeah, I'm, I'm your man. Come on, baby. And then you get into the studio and maybe it's, oh, little, little rust here. Well, why don't we make a little shift? Well, I also think that Roger may have hurt he and Rick. Nick and Rick didn't feel like they were up to stuff from, you know, all the stuff that Roger you know, had put into their head for so long. Not to mention maybe. they didn't tour. You know, you yeah. can't just go out. And, I mean, Gilmore can go out and be a solo artist. Roger can go out and be a solo artist. He just go out there with the drums, you know. He hasn't been touring, right? So 
He's definitely rusty. Yeah, so Keltner's awesome. And I know Nick did some stuff, but it it must be nice to be a drummer. And then you don't have to drum, but it's just you and Gilmore. You two get the picture and the record, right? (sighs) Must be nice. Yeah. He, He did make some sacrifices, though. To fund the tour, he had to put his Ferrari 250 GTO up as collateral. And I'm glad it all worked out. I saw Life on the Road with Brian Johnson from ACDC where Nick's like, they're actually pretty nice about it. It's not like they carted it off and took it to the bank and stuck it in the vault. You know, they, they let me hold on to it and keep it secure at my, at my airplane hangar or whatever. But I didn't realize how valuable that car was, man. He, he bought it in the 70s for like 35,000 quid or something like that. 40,000, something like that. One sold at private auction a couple years ago for $70 million. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, he's got a lot, <laughs> a lot of nice cars. Yeah, he does. Yeah, he does. All right, that's that's track one. All right, kind of warming us up, getting us in there, written by David Gilmore and Bob Ezrin as the mm-hmm. co-writer there. And then we get into the big single, Learning to Fly. This is what kind of introduced us to the new Pink Floyd, because it's all over the radio, it's all over MTV. What were your impressions of it when you first heard it or saw the video? I thought it was I thought it was really good. I thought it was of the time. Like it sounded it sounded like it could hold its own on the radio on uh, MTV. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, it's just a really cool song about. I mean, okay, learning to fly. Yes, it's literal. They were learning to fly, but it just sounds. It it you just get that feeling of taking off and flying. And I don't know, is this a new part of the band, a new part of the history? Where you know, we're going in a different direction. I really like the uh, the part about how they go into the the background vocals of the. It almost sounds like a launch sequence or mm-hmm. something. I mean, you can you can, and then he goes into the he, you know that it really sounds like you're you know this kind of ethereal flying part of it. Yeah, it, it like I said, it, it's a great single track from Pink Floyd, which they probably again Waters was probably like we don't write single track, right? But I mean, definitely a, st- a nice standalone. You could just listen to this and appreciate it without listening to the rest of the record. That You're right about that. It, it, the single did well. It got into the charts. It went around the world. You know, it has the samples in it. I think that's actually Nick Mason talking when he's taking off or landing or something okay. on there. Which, again, go back to Dark Side of the Moon. They've been using samples for a long time. you know. So it, it was of Pink Floyd. It was an homage to their past, but it's also about moving forward. And, yeah, they're talking about flying. I think the boys bought a plane together, Nick and David, as they were both learning to fly at the same time. But it has good Gilmore guitar work on it. Rick Wright did play some piano and some backing vocals on it had the big budget video with the flight sequences and stuff like that so i thought it was a pretty pretty great song honestly as soon as i heard it i'm like that's good i like that or some but but i wasn't poisoned by it had to be as good as sheep or it had to be as good as you know whatever you know the, the heavy stuff that roger i'm like this is new it's an old band with a brand I recognize, but the song is cool. And for our generation, it was, I, I thought it was top notch. Yeah. I thought it was great. Uh, yeah, I agree. I agree. And like I said, it, it at that point in time, it could hold its own with any of the stuff that was on, any of the rock tracks that were on MTV or cla- it wasn't classic rock back then, but like the new rock songs mm-hmm. of that era. Yeah, U2, the rest of the stuff that was out at that point in time. So yeah, I mean, I, it, and again, it's a, it's it's one that probably most people, they've heard it before that you might not even know was Pink Floyd, but oh yeah, oh yeah, no, I've heard that song, right? I mean, it was, it was 
it was pretty big in the United States. It was big, yeah, absolutely. Maybe less so over here, but it was really big. Although I think the album hit number three both in the UK and the US, but it was top ten all around the world. Look, mm-hmm. 10 million copies sold, at least half of those were the United States. So uh, they're awfully big, Pink Floyd, thanks to the USA. And all around the world, yes. I, I feel like maybe in Britain at that point, they're like, you know, we're kind of moving on at this point. There's still big Pink Floyd. I mean, some big Pink Floyd fans will buy anything that says Pink Floyd. So, but there were right. some staunch Roger supporters like, nope, that's that's not Pink Floyd without Roger. And then, you know, they, they have their say. They have their, their, their point. So you go from the big, almost happy, ethereal, learning to fly into the heavy, charging, pounding. The pitchforks are out at night. The witch hunt is on. For the dogs of war, you know. And I remember this one back in the day, too. The it, it feels like something's coming to get you. Correct. And in, in the Delicate Sound of Thunder, they had video of, like, the dogs running through the arena, you know, like, yeah. running up on stage and things like that. It's a, it's a real change of pace. Like, it kind of, like, if you listen to the record... Like the the first two songs segue in, and then the end of Learning to Fly, you get the you get the dogs, and then it goes into this one. And the good news is, you know, we don't have to worry about this anymore. The dogs of war, and that. Oh uh, wait, yeah, we kind of do. Womp womp. Yeah. So I mean, this song is now pretty. I mean, it's coming back to be. I listened to it several times. I'm like, ooh. That's unfortunately topical again, but yeah, it's a real change of pace. It's really like it's really ominous. Like you just you just hear the beginning without anything, any of those words, and you just yeah, you just feel like something is coming to get me. And that sequence, we talked about this on the delicate sound design, the sequence on the screen with the dogs just they're running and then they're running through the field and then they're coming into the, are they in the arena now right. what's going on yeah just that build up it's just fantastic yeah given the state of the world today dogs of war when you're talking about spies and sellouts and people doing things they shouldn't be doing yeah it's it's very poignant and it makes you wonder because once delicate sound of thunder came out they put that record in the soyez the russian rocket soyez it was the first record, you know, shot up. First live record played in space. I wonder how they feel about that now. <laughs> Very interesting. Carmine Apice actually played the drums on this one. Okay. Uh, who is part of the Pantheon podcast family. So we'd love to have Carmine on to talk about that, among other things, sometimes. Absolutely. But he's got that heavier you know, heavy metal kind of vanilla fudge, big fat drum. Which is it. what you needed for this track. Absolutely. Yeah. But y- you wonder, is that Scott Page, he of the most hideous mullet ever on that big sax solo? Because like you said, you know, they, they had a double of everybody on the tour. They had a double or triple of everybody in the studio. You know, Tom Scott did some alto and soprano sax. John Hallowell did some sax. And then Scott Page who did come with them on that tour, he did some tenor sax. So I got to admit, I can't always tell a tenor from an alto sax. I'm, my ear's yeah. not really that trained. But I just wonder, because he was good on stage, Scott Page. He had good movements. You could tell he was belting it out. It was just that hair was so distracting, man. <laughs> he almost looked kind of like an animal the first time you saw him, because he comes running up on stage after you had the whole, you know, wolf dog intro. And I'm like, yeah, what's going on? He sounds great, but yeah, what is going on with that hair? hair like, it's man. not just like, oh, I haven't cut it in a while. No, that's you're on a mission with that thing. Yeah, no, it was like a pompadour, like a flat top on top. Yes. And then down the back was the longest. I mean, it looked like he could have been an elf from Lord of the Rings with this long blonde <laughs> hair. You know, mulletized. I'm like, 
God, that is the weirdest thing I may have ever seen in my whole life. But it was distinct. We're still talking about it 35 years later. So Correct. So Correct. Way to and go, I guarantee Scott. you, if I put that on again right now, I would say the same thing. Like, wow, that is just shocking to look at. Well, maybe we can watch it together, you know, because I did get this Pink Floyd, The Later Years box set a couple of years ago for Christmas. And they remastered this album. They, they remastered a few different things including Delicate Sound of Thunder, including this record, and they beefed up, put back in a lot of Rick Wright's keyboard so it does sound a little bit better. But they added some songs back to Delicate Sound of Thunder, and they gave me the video, the DVD, as well. And subsequently, they've been like releasing each one of them individually. So you can go get okay. remastered Delicate Sound. You can get remastered Momentary Lapse, but I've got them all at once. So maybe end of the day, when you get over here, that might ex be exactly how we wind Ooh, it down. That would be fun. Hi, I'm Amanda Lehman, and you're listening to Ugly American Werewolf in London Rock Podcast. All right, moving along to one slip, which contains the title phrase, Momentary Lapse of Reason in the chorus. Right. I always liked it. I've always liked this song. It sounds, it's definitely more upbeat. It's definitely a nice change of pace, but then you kind of listen to it, and it's like, well, I don't really know if it's really all that happy or not. It's, it's There's some stuff in there where you're like, uh. I mean, it's kind of cool because you've got the, the drums at the beginning, kind of like that there's one and then there's two that are doubling it. And so it, it's a cool intro. And, but then, the, like I said, some of the stuff in there is, hey, wait a minute, what are you talking about? No. Was it love or was it the idea of being in love? <sighs> yeah. yeah. Unfortunately, I've... I've said that before. Oh boy! Well, you know, you take a step back, and you're like, you know what? Maybe it was the, uh, maybe it was the latter of those two. You know, it, yeah, momentary lapse of reason. And I, I always thought that was cool too. That that's the only. This is the only time they mention that is in this song. Right. There's no track on it. There's no. I mean, a separate track. This is it. So it's kind of like, oh, here's where it comes from. And really, the whole album is like this. But I feel like this track in particular, you need to listen to this on a big stereo because there's a lot of music to hear. There's a lot of things to hear. And if you just listen to it on like an Echo or a headphones, you might not really get it all. The way it's produced, the soundscape, especially since it's been remastered, to hear it on stereo is really the, the treatment you need to give it. And apparently Tony Levin plays a Chapman stick on this, which is a 10-string instrument um, that you can play the bass with. And I always thought the bass was great on here. It's not technically a bass. It's something called a Chapman stick. I had to look it up and look at a picture. You've not seen this before, man. But okay. it, it makes a cool sound. So, yeah, so it, it's, it's really a little different there and you know you think it's fading out because a lot of Pink Floyd songs fade out so it gets the you know four and a half five minute mark it's fading out and then boom it's back and then it's was it love or was the idea of being in love so yeah. I think these are better lyrics on here than most of them Phil Manzanera who is played with a lot of great people including I think Roxy Music but he's played with David Gilmore in his solo tours a lot and is a very accomplished musician in his own right he's got the co-write uh, on one slip and I I wonder if those are his lyrics, but good on him, man. Yeah, and I did write the write down. I mean, I just put bass, but I mean, the bass bridges in this song are pretty cool. It's it's a nice change of pace, Very good. and it, it it really adds a lot to the song. Yeah, of course, it, now I know it's not that, but well, well, it's still it's the bass. It's playing the role of the bass. Yeah, it, it's a it's a great song, and live it was really great. It's 
I don't consider one of the big three. To me, the big three is the big single, Learning to Fly. On the Turning Away, which is an emotional song. It's, it's fairly Floydian. And then to me, Sorrow is kind of big epic at the end, which we'll get to. Not necessarily the three best on the record, but they're the three big ones. But to me, One Slip deserves its credit. And here's the thing. On the original Delicate Sound of Thunder, it was Comfortably Numb and then Run Like Hell and then the show's over. Okay. But apparently in concert, it was Comfortably Numb, One Slip, and then Run Like Hell. They put this new song between those two epics from the wall. But on the video and on the record, it works. The song fits in well there. It sounds great because their energy's high right after doing Comfortably Numb. Everybody's psyched. Everyone's in a good mood. So then they go into one slip and everyone's playing their bits. You know, it's like everyone's on stage at this point. They're all doing their thing. And Guy Pratt was there on the bass, you know. And I'm like, this is great. It fits in. And I never knew it, of course, because I never saw them live. But thanks to the remaster and the fact that they can put more information on a DVD versus, say, the VHS that you had. Now we can yeah. see that, and thank God for it, man. Thank goodness. Yeah, always, always more is better on on something like this. And yeah, to to replicate more of the live feel or the live experience, I'll take that all day long. Absolutely, every time. Yeah, and they did some of the other things like Terminal Frost or New Machines, some of the instrumentals that we'll get into. Uh, they also put back on there as well because they're playing okay. most all of the record because they wanted to. Uh, they wanted to show, hey, we we don't need Roger and we've got a new record right. and we're going to play all this new stuff. Now the next one on the Turning Away, pretty emotional song. This correct. It, it just it sounds like even if you've never heard this song before, right from the beginning you're like, some big is coming from this. It just you know he starts off real. It's just him, and then they just then they just start dropping other instruments in. You know the acoustic guitar comes in and it just builds and it builds and it builds uh yeah this is again you could probably you know is this as great as comfortably no absolutely not it's a pretty good song it's pretty emotional exactly and yeah i mean i've listened to this track 178,000 times i would just rewind the tape and listen to it again i know yeah i understand and it's heavy you're talking about it has some gravitas to it you're talking about heavy things but it's also heartwarming in some way. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just – and that's the difference between Pink Floyd with Roger Waters and without Roger Waters. If Roger had been on this track, it wouldn't be heartwarming. It's like we're turning away and it's always going to be like this and the world is horrible <laughs> and people suck. There's no hope. You know, <laughs> but it, 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 it feels like a song of hope. You know, when they say no more turning away – so, yeah. Yes, that's what we need to get to. That's what we need to work toward as a society. Whereas Roger never sees that side of the coin. It's, it's all just like you're screwing this up. You're all bad, and I'm telling everybody about it. You know, and that see that to me is the difference. And you want to listen to Final Cut? You can listen to it all day long as long as I don't have to. I will listen to this <laughs> and this song particularly. You know, every day. I mean, all the time. This is a great go-to. You want to chill out. You want to relax. This whole record is great, and this song is brilliant. I mean, did they? I remember hearing it on the radio, thinking that was a, it was an older song, like, like it wasn't new, like maybe it was part of somebody's back catalog. Until I realized it was okay. on momentary lapse. Yeah, it, it definitely sounds more like catalog Pink Floyd stuff than than the other stuff on this record. I really like the fact when they kind of they drop out, and then the bass is just kind of walking around by itself. And then they come back in again with the main riff and the, all everybody's singing on the kind of the, I don't know, like the, 
I guess a the C part of the song. I guess mm-hmm. uh, that's really cool. And then I guess the deal was that Gilmore said, you may have forgotten who I am. So let me just reacquaint you to how this is going along. And the solo in this is just, I mean, it's epic. It's, it's, it, is it, is it as is great it? as comfortably numb? <laughs> it's pretty good. And the other thing that really hit me listening to it this time is he can do, he can be very emotional and very powerful without shredding like there's no like it's all very accessible to listen to but it's just like wow if i was going to really play that's the way you'd want to play just that you know you put I'm, i don't think he does but you know you put one foot up on the monitor and just rip it out to people no it's he can squeeze more emotion out of a note than, than most anybody can it's yeah i feel like he and carlos santana are best at that but he and, and that's the thing he can't emote verbally or he can't emote by writing it down, but he can make the guitar make a sound that conveys how he's feeling, and it's a special talent, and he is about the best in the world at it. I give him all the credit in the world. But I also want to give credit to the backup singers, Darlene Koldenhoven, Carmen Twilly, Phyllis St. James, and Donnie Gerard. Sometimes they're singing the chorus, sometimes they're just kind of doing Oz, but it creates yeah. a, a soundscape that is warm, and emotional, and uh, and they and they deserve a lot of credit for their contribution. Absolutely, yeah, it definitely it definitely adds to that. And, and like I said, I really like the part that I really like the fact that they they just continually build on the song until yeah, at the end it sounds like I mean it sounds like a hundred people sing. Yeah, exactly. Like yeah. The chorus. Yeah. All right, better move on. We move on to yet another movie. This is one I needed to listen to this a couple times. It's not like I hadn't heard it one hundred and seventy eight thousand times because I I always right. listen to this album in total. I listen to the whole thing, and sometimes right. when it's over, I'm like, "Is that it? Well, let's just play it again." And I just, I just press play again. But uh, it, it builds, right? It, it has decent lyrics. He worked with a guy named Patrick Leonard, whose resume is unbelievable as far as a songwriter goes. Just the people he's worked with, and he also plays keys on this one as well. So it is them trying to do some heavy lyrics, but it it builds into a fairly intense. Gilmore solo on this one. Yeah, I, I think that after well, first of all, the the synth intro is nice because it's you need a little break after you know you got you need a little come down after Turn after the last uh, mm-hmm. after the last track. I always thought this always hit me like I, I went and did a little bit of research on this of this record. Dogs of War was used on Miami Vice in an episode called Boresca. 12988. I always thought this would have been a cool Miami Vice. Oh, yeah. Theme yeah. Music, like, like, yeah. You know, yeah. It's, you know, it's night. They're going to get whoever they're going to get. You know, it's, it's go time. It's just a real dark, synthy 80s sound on this one, at least at the beginning. Yeah. I like that. that that's cool. Yeah. And then at the end, I think he's doing some pedal steel slide work there at the end, maybe. It, it could be. It sounds like that, yeah. Yeah. So it, it's one. Because I, it's not like the chorus is yet another movie. You know, it's 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 not one that I recall a lot, especially when you know he's got the three big ones. Plus, you've got one slip. Plus, you've got you know some of these other things. But uh, but this is a good good bit of it. I assume this was number the first song on the second side of the of the tape or the record. I mean, I only ever had I it think, on CD. Yes. But. Yeah, I think it was because because I remember yeah that that was the the big finish to side one. 
was turning and then away. This was starting. Yeah. yeah. And I remember, you know, you flip it over and it's like, Ooh, you know, what are we doing now? Now we're into something new with the, with the different sound on there. Yeah. And again, you could, you could play this a hundred times and you say, Oh, you like that track yet another movie. Wait, which one is that? And then you play, Oh yeah, yeah I've heard this yeah. before, but yeah, it, the title and it just doesn't, it doesn't imprint it on yourself. Well, that's right. That's right. And it is, you know, the first six songs here, are co-written with folks, right? I mean, Learning to Fly had right. four different co-writers. It's Gilmore and co-writers. But starting with Round Around, Round Around through the end, now these are all Gilmore rights. And Round and Round, which is just a barely over a one-minute instrumental, it's it's really, it, it, the end of yet another movie melds into Round and Around. It's, all, it's almost like they fade together, but the sound doesn't go down. They, they just kind of it works its way into something else. Correct. And it's, a, it's a, again, it's a nice little change of pace. It's a, it's a short one, but, you know, I can listen to David Gilmore play the guitar all day long. So, yeah, it, it's, got, it's got a decent part in there. It doesn't really need lyrics. Right. But it's, it, it's almost like, except it's almost like the whole second side almost doesn't stop. It all kind of completely goes together and one song runs in the next, which is certainly the case right. for yet another movie in the round and round. Then New Machine... It goes New Machine, Terminal Frost, New Machine Part 2. And New Machine is not two minutes long. New Machine Part 2 is like 30 seconds long. And in the middle, Terminal Frost is a six-plus-minute instrumental. So it's kind of a suite of one big song that they've made into three different ones. But you could also, if you threw round and round on it too, is that the beginning of this one? Is it the end of yet another movie? It's kind of depends on how you want to look at it. I never, yeah. I never really, I, I never really separated these three. They were all kind of part of the same thing to me because he's, he's it's new machine part one. It's David's voice. And it sounds like he's got a synth effect to then double or ape his voice, you know, to give it more volume and to give it more depth. It's about him waiting or trying to get out of somewhere, you know. I wonder if it had, he was like, when they were stuck in limbo, like, can we make a Pink Floyd record? Can we not make a Pink Floyd record? Is Roger going to let this happen? You know, is this going to have to be David Gilmore's third? Can we carry on with the band? I don't know. And it said nobody lives forever in there. So there's some heavy lyrics, but it's just kind of an odd little short piece that doesn't have a whole lot of music with it. And I remember, too, I'm like, you know, is he trying to sound like a robot? Like, what is going on here? And then the other thing, too, is, okay, so now, you know, it, we've been listening to this for a while now. So if you were in your bed listening to this you're kind of maybe starting to drift off and mm -hmm. then you know he says you know ah we'll always be there and then there's a but then there's a gap and you think is it over and then it comes back in again it kind of just startles you for a minute uh yeah it, i always thought this was kind of cool and it was short too and then you have terminal for us and then it comes back again so yeah you did feel like this was one it was basically one piece put together sandwiched in with the with the other tracks yeah and i like terminal frost i mean it's it's long it's got some good rick wright work on there the, and the, i can tell i can tell one's an alto sax and i think maybe then later there's a tenor one but it, it's it's chill it's not real hard charging and it kind of fades out at the end but then you're right that you're back to another 40 seconds or whatever it is of, of new machine too and i'm like why did they break that up <laughs> But it's, you know, hey, you know, they can do what they want. And that's what Pink Floyd does, right? They, they have these kind of odd samples and sometimes some odd time signatures and they can fade in and out and connect things. So, hey, it's Floydian. 
So right. let but, him do it. Yeah, and that's why I really thought, especially those three, Machine, Terminal Frost, and then Machine 2, I really thought that was just one One track. big song, yeah. Because, it, because, you know, you have the start off with the, just the vocals, the distorted vocals. Then you have the Terminal Frost, which is, I mean, it, it is really cool. And the sax work in it is great. And then it goes back into kind of the end. They, you know, they bookend it mm-hmm. with that. Yeah, I, I, it, it sounds it sounds to me like it's one piece. It it, it always has to me too. Um, yeah, but they you know they break it up that way. It's all Gilmore, so it's it's mm-hmm. it's all his stuff. But you talk about pulling emotion out of a note. Listen to the opening riff of Sorrow, and tell me that that doesn't grab you in the heart or the sack or what whatever <laughs> you know makes you feel because it's you don't have to hear you don't have to see that it's titled Sorrow. To feel like there's some pain involved in this one. It always sounded to me like he was playing the intro riff to this with a chainsaw. Like it was just, it just bites into you. And it's the same, I I don't know if it's exactly the same riff, but it's very, very similar to what you heard at the beginning on Signs of Life. Only now it's on a, and now it's on an electric guitar. But yeah, like you just, again, I don't know what this song is about. I don't know what I'm getting myself into, but it just sets the tone right there. And then it just goes into, it's interesting that this is the last track on the record because it really kind of just leaves you like, oh man, I just got beat up on this one. It's almost nine minutes long. It's easily the longest yeah. on the on the record. You know, yeah, it's the, the kind of haunting opening riff bit. And then it goes into, it's got keyboard and drums and, and, and plodding along. Again, the backup singers do an amazing job uh, on this one, you know, to really sound it out there. And then he, he kind of ends it with that heaviness again, and then it kind of fades out. I mean, it's, it's the heavy. He's just thumping on this one. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I remember... I'm pretty sure this is on Delicate Sound of Thunder because I had Delicate Sound before I had Momentary Lapse. And I remember it being like, God, this is really, really good. Yeah, no, it was. And I don't know. I just, I I loved it really from the first time I heard it. It was, they recreated it live very well. I made cool visuals with it. You know, it's, it's an amazing way to wrap up the record in that it has... Again, a lot of emotion, but it also has a lot of great music and melody, harmony in it. It's a standout to me. That's why I say it's one of the big three. It, it was not a single. The third single yeah. was one slip, and I don't think it went anywhere. Learning to Fly was a pretty big hit. On the Turning Away it was kind of a radio hit. It wasn't huge, but it's like, you know, this is another. It's very Floydy. It's it's another kind of lesser hit. I don't think one slip really hit the charts, even though it's a great song. I consider Sorrow the big one, because it is so long and it has this sonic quality to it that is hard to replicate. Yeah. I wonder, I'm wondering too now, I'd have to go back and watch Delicate Sound of Thunder, which I might do now. Who does Gilmore do his own changes on the effects or does he have somebody else? And if he has somebody else, that was a full-time job because to replicate this, it must have been a, quite a electronic setup they had backstage to make sure everything was right. Yeah, I, I think he has pedals. I think, I think he's in charge of it, at least to some degree, but I don't know, maybe not. The thing is, to get that sound, they didn't do that in the studio. They went to the L.A. Sports Arena, and they had David play that and let the echo echo up on the walls and the seats. And then they had, like, a mobile studio, you know, come in and record that, you know, So when when they're in the L.A. portion of recording. So Ezrin, I guess, helped them find that sound, and good on him, he did, because it's killer. I've not heard anything else like it. And using David's emotional ability with that guitar to hold those notes – and get that noise, 
It's awesome. Yeah, yeah. It, and it is a really it's it's an interesting way to end the record because it is the longest song on there. But I think it I think it works perfectly in this uh in this lineup. Oh absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Great way to, to end the record. What more than fifty minutes, so not super long record, but probably other than the wall, probably their longest at that point. And a, a great statement. And it and it gives them the ability to go tour because now they basically have an hour of new material. They could play the whole thing right. and they're not only beholden to wish you were here and time and you know everything else. Which they did work in and it and it's interesting it was interesting to hear Gilmore sing everything. Mm-hmm. Um, because he didn't originally, but I think it works on the on the new live stuff. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and even Guy Pratt doing a little bit of Roger on he had to do Roger's bits on Run Like Hell on that tour. And you know, a couple of other things that maybe he had to uh, he had to chime in on, but honestly, I'm just glad they came back. You know, the Pink Floyd could have been done at that point. They really could have. Roger could have won his lawsuit and said, that's it. You can't tour and that's it. You're not Pink Floyd anymore. And some of these songs would have come out as David Gilmore songs, but they wouldn't have gotten the play that they would have, obviously, from being on Pink Floyd records. Not as many people would have seen them live as that enormous tour they did. And then subsequently, the Division Bell and the Pulse tour... We wouldn't have been robbed of all of that as well. And, okay, you want to tell me it's not as good as the stuff they did in the 60s and the 70s? I'll give it to you. You're right, okay? And Roger called it a clever forgery. And even David said some of his criticisms are fairly accurate. You know, that my lyrics aren't great. And some of the music isn't the best we've ever done. But it's good. It fit into the time. It fits in with their catalog. It gave them the chance to do this incredible tour and more. So, yes, you're right. We are very biased. (laughs) And we always will be. (laughs) But we talk about the stuff we love on here that people need to hear more of. So that's why you're hearing it now, folks. And, And I probably hadn't listened to this record in a long time. And so it was one of those like, ooh, is this going to be as good? No, it's it's as good as I remember it was. It just it all it all fits together. I don't really think there are any duds on it. I don't think there are any real skips. It all fits together. It's not a concept record like the Wall. Right. I don't think it ever wanted to be. Never it never pretended to be that. It's just a, a really solid standalone rock record that, like you said, propelled them into being able to tour and being able to give the music to the the back catalog stuff to to people again. Yeah, thankfully it's not a concept record, right? I mean, that's all they did for the longest time. Wish You Were Here is kind of a concept. (laughs) Animals is certainly a concept. Wall's the biggest concept record of all time. And even the final cut was this, it was crap concept, but it's concept just the same, you know? It's like, can we just have some songs that can stand on their own, you know? So, no. Yeah. So glad I got to see them play live, and I don't know if we're ever going to see, I, I, I regret that I've never seen David Gilmore solo, partly because he toured with Rick Wright for a long time. Like, Rick was just like his keyboard man and, and backup singer. I'm like, God, that's half a Pink Floyd. You go see the price of a David Gilmore ticket, you know? But he just turned 76, I think, yesterday or today as we're recording this. He's incredibly wealthy. He has eight or nine kids, something crazy like that, including, you know, what's-her-name's kids as well. So, I mean, Polly's children as well. So he doesn't have to tour. Touring is very hard. Yes, he does it cool. He does it first class. But he doesn't have to. I would like him to do one more just so I could see him. But my guess, I've never been more sure that we'll never see Pink Floyd again. I've seen Roger a couple times. I would like to see Nick Mason's Saucer Full of Secrets. 
with Guy and, and Gary yeah, Kemp and that, those that, guys. Yeah, that does that does look very interesting. You know, all the pre dark like, side stuff. Yeah, and and I mean, I if you would ever be so kind to we to talk to Guy Pratt on this show just about that. T- Door and what it was like to have this, you know, the, the, the most massive undertaking at that point in time it would be great to just hear about the stories from the road and how they put it all together and what it was like to to coordinate all that, that stuff. You know, make sure everybody's in the right place at the right time with the laser show and my singing backup on this. Do I need to be back to to the mic? I know I saw, I can't remember who it was. I think it was Def Leppard and they were working out the show, one of the Vegas shows. Mm-hmm. And and so, and Rick Savage was like, okay, so I'm playing here, but now I've got to be back to the microphone. So I only have a certain amount of time to come down these steps and get, so just the, the logistics of it had to be just unprecedented at that point in time. Well, and so Guy Pratt, yes, he was in Pink Floyd for those two tours and he toured with David Gilmore as well. And solo, I think he even toured with Roger a bit, but he has an even deeper connection to Rick to Pink Floyd in that his wife is Rick Wright's daughter. Interesting. Yeah, so he's so, he's part of the yeah, family. Just another layer. <laughs> yeah. Another layer of the conversation. Absolutely. He's part of the Pink Floyd family and deserves to be, you know. So look, David Gilmore's solo stuff is great. His live stuff, like live in Gdansk and that kind of stuff, is fantastic. Definitely recommend checking that out. But that's that's a show for another day. So so thanks, Jackson, and congratulations on being part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Can't I'm still pinching myself. I can't believe we're here. It just validates our existence on the face of the earth right now and that we're people really like what we're doing at least some people so i'm so happy to be here and i look forward to what we can do uh moving forward thanks to, to christian and peter thanks to the shout it out loud guys thanks to all the other great podcasters but thanks to all our fans and, and all the listeners who've helped us get this far being part of pantheon is going to help us improve it's going to improve our sound quality it's going to improve our guests it's going to uh, just improve everything we can do to the show. We're going to try to make it as good as possible going forward. And Pantheon's going to be a big player in that. And we're just excited to get started here. So, and you can go to pantheonpodcast.com not only to find our show, but dozens of other great music shows, whatever your taste may be. That wraps up episode number 69 of the Ugly American Werewolf in London Rock Podcast on Pink Floyd's 1987 A Momentary Lapse of Reason. Never one that got a lot of praise from the critics, and the hardcore Pink Floyd fans never gave it much credibility either, just because Roger wasn't on it. But I gotta tell you, it sounds very Pink Floydy. If you were 14 years old, the way we were when it came out, you saw it on MTV, it fit. It fit into the time. It fit into the sound of Pink Floyd, and it was our first Pink Floyd album. We were six or seven years old when The Wall came out. We were just born when Dark Side of the Moon came out, and we had that pushed down our throats for decades. But when this record came out, it was ours, and it spoke to us. And it's a fantastic piece of recording. There's a lot of great talent on there, and it gave a whole new generation of Pink Floyd fans like us the chance to not only discover them and discover their catalog, but the chance to see them live just one more time. And I'm so fortunate that I got to see them in Tampa on the Division Bell Tour. Now, as usual, folks, we want to know, did we get something right? Did we get something wrong? Did we miss the point? Did we leave out your favorite part? You've got to let us know. Tweet us or DM us at ugly underscore werewolf or at actionjack72. 
Let us know the records, the albums, the shows, bands, the DVDs that you want us to talk about. Next week, we dive into a 30th anniversary of a different kind. It's Keith Richards' main offender. He made two solo records outside of the Stones with the expensive winos. Main offender came out in 1992, had kind of a fairly big hit single with Wicked As It Seems on there. And we're going to go in-depth because there's a 30th anniversary edition that not only has the record revamped, but has a live show from 1992 on Keith's birthday. So we'll talk about that next time here on The Wolf. In the meantime, you know, check us out on Pantheon Podcasts. We're proud to be part of that family. You can check out PantheonPodcast.com or check them out on Twitter at Pantheon Pods. Learn more about us and all the other amazing shows on Pantheon Pods. Until next time, all you rock and rollers all around the world. Be cool and stay safe. As a new Western Union customer, you can enjoy a $0 transfer fee on your first international online money transfer. Send money to your loved ones back home the fast, easy, and reliable way. Visit westernunion.com or download their app today to get started. And your first transfer fee is free. Services offered by Western Union Financial Services, Inc., NMLS 906983, or Western Union International Services, LLC, NMLS 906985, FX Gain Supply.